everyone. Welcome to another week of Wildlife Journeys. I'm your co-host, Emma. And I'm your co-host, Dan. And this week, we have a guest, a very special guest, uh, a guest that was one of the first people that popped to mind when we actually started doing the show. So very excited to finally have him on. Um, we have Eric Tightsworth, who is a PhD candidate at NC State University. Uh, Eric, welcome to the show. You want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Hi. Yeah. Um, so I'm super glad to be here. I've listened to some of your other podcasts leading up to this. And I, first of all, just love the idea of this. Um, it's always really meaningful to have people express their stories so that you understand like how you can get into the field. Um, but so, yeah, uh, I'm, as Dan mentioned, a PhD candidate at NC State. Um, I'm about to enter into my sixth year. So I've been here for a little while, had a little bit of an interesting road. And I study the Noose River water dog, uh, this really cool, uh, fully aquatic salamander that's only found in eastern North Carolina. And I'm sure we'll talk all about my research and more about the species. But uh, yeah, that's that's what I've been spending my uh, last well, with writing the grant and everything, it's been like seven years that I've devoted my life to this creature. Yeah, it's a long time to spend with with one creature. But if you got to pick one, New River Water Dog is a pretty good choice there. Oh, absolutely. They're incredible. When at, when we messaged you about coming on the show, I think you hit the nail on the head with, with why we do the show. You said even if it helps one person, you know, figure it out, then it's worth it. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like I've interacted with, particularly a lot of people just trying to get into wildlife sciences and like there's no clear path there's no right way to get in and so it's meaningful to be able to hear you know how other people have done it just to get some ideas and give you some confidence to let you know like yeah whatever you're doing as long as you're progressing like that's that's good you're doing the right thing yeah yeah and I know a little bit of your story and I know that in a lot of ways, you kind of paved your own road. So I thought it'd be really cool to hear more about that. And then you also take on a lot of volunteers. So I think you extend kind of that open door to a lot of people too, which is awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I love that part of it. Absolutely. So did you grow up in North Carolina? I did not. So I grew up in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So it's a suburb of Philadelphia maybe about half an hour to 45 minutes west of the city. Uh, so yeah, no, definitely um, a northerner <laughs> moving south was a little bit uh, different for me at first. But uh, yeah, I grew up there, grew up, you know, spending a lot of time in my backyard, appreciating the wildlife that we saw there. Um, although admittedly, that was somewhat limited being in suburbia. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I grew up there, but I've been living here now for about seven years. Yeah. So do you want to tell us how you first kind of got interested in wildlife? So you said you, you know, grew up with what wildlife you had, but where did your interest really start? So I feel fortunate that, well, I, I can't really, I can't pinpoint when I became interested in working with animals and wildlife. But I feel fortunate that it was always encouraged by my parents. So like some of my earliest memories are, you know, we had these flashcards of different species and different animals. 
And before I even knew how to read, I knew how to identify animals by looking at their picture. And you know, I spent hours and hours watching shows on PBS, you know, like Nature and Nova and all sorts of things with my parents. And it's kind of funny, I, I didn't learn until like years later that uh, even though neither of them had a career in wildlife science, um, my dad actually, uh, it, in pursuing his biology degree, all of his electives were ologies. So like ichthyology, ornithology, those sorts of things. And so as a young adult, it finally clicked. It was like, oh, okay, that's why you were so supportive of this growing up. And yeah, so I, I always felt like I was the animal lover amongst my friend group. And when I was in high school and trying to decide what I wanted to do with my life, uh, it made sense to settle on you know, working with animals as a career path. It was always a passion of mine. And uh, yeah, so I, I, th I think that's where I started. Yeah. And was there any like uh, particular species that, or, or taxa, I guess, that you were particularly interested in when you were growing up? Um, yeah, not in particular. I mean, if I had to like really stretch to try to think of something, maybe like mammals in tropical systems, uh, like kinkajous and uh, lemurs, like all sorts of wild creatures like that are, are really neat. Um, yeah, growing up, I was not particularly interested in herps. I think like a lot of kids growing up, I had a pretty healthy fear of snakes for a long time. And so finding myself in a herpetology focused career path is maybe not what I would have expected. Uh, but yeah, I, I guess before I realized my passion for wildlife conservation in North America, you know, where I live, I I always imagined myself working in some sort of like, you know, romanticized version of, you know, a, a tropical setting or someplace with a like crazy biodiversity. Um, I've visited a few of those places, but <laughs> haven't ended up working there. Yeah, I think that's an appeal to a lot of us. Like, mm -hmm. that's definitely what you see on TV is the David Attenborough, the crazy wildlife and uh, the tropics. So. But I, I also think it's it's funny to hear you say that you were, you know, afraid of snakes growing up because that's so different from the Eric I knew when we would go out <laughs> herping and like looking for snakes. But I think that's that's awesome. And uh, I think it's nice for other people to know that even if you didn't always like them or mm -hmm. maybe if you still don't, maybe you can you can warm up to them. So, oh, yeah, yeah. So did you, uh, where did you go to, to undergrad and did you go for wildlife or just biology in general or? So I did my undergraduate degree at Penn State University. So it's the, you know, predominant, very large um, ag and engineering school. It's our land grant university in Pennsylvania. So, you know, the one that does all of the like biological extension and, and things like that. Um, I did my first two years actually at a satellite campus, uh, which functioned much like a community college, which was a fun experience in that, um, you know, I, I, I had that experience of um, being in an area where everyone had a part-time job and no one necessarily knew what they were doing with their lives. <laughs> um, so 
uh, it was it was fun to kind of start at a small place, but then move to the larger university for my second two years, uh, my junior and senior years. I fell into the wildlife science. So my degree title is wildlife and fishery science. I fell into that because I knew I wanted to work with animals. And the only thing that I really knew within that, aside from like veterinary science, was zoology. And historically, Penn State had a zoology degree, but they don't right now. And being a Pennsylvania native, having a lot of strong familial ties to that university, I wanted to go there. They didn't have the degree I was looking for, but wildlife science sounded close enough. So I signed up for that and ended up getting super lucky that I, I fell in love with it, uh, which I, I wasn't particularly expecting. And then what came after that? Was there field jobs, uh, you know, a period of time between that and NC State? Yeah, yeah. So between those times, um, you know, I, I could I can make this as short or as long of a version as we need to, but I spent four years doing different technician jobs primarily. Um, so actually, even before graduating, my first field job was in essentially like botany. So between my junior and senior year, I did uh, some vegetation assessment plots for this deer forest study. So, you know, throughout a lot of North America, we have a lot of white-tailed deer, historically more than <laughs> there were naturally. And so, you know, they, that's, they impact the habitat uh, in really interesting ways. And yeah, that first project that I had was going out into the woods, establishing these vegetation plots to ultimately try to assess the impact of the white-tailed deer community there. Um, so maybe an unusual first job for a wildlifer in, you know, plant ID, but immediately after graduating, uh, so it was literally the day after my graduation, I started in a six month tech job, uh, actually doing something really similar to what you did, Emma, in, uh, timber rattlesnake radio telemetry. Uh, so I was super excited to hear, you know, your experience with that because my experience was very, very similar. We were out in uh, north central Pennsylvania, uh, following around snakes day after day to see what they did, see where they went. The whole purpose of that project was to assess the larger population in our, you know, control area where it was less disturbed forest and in an area that has a lot of shale gas uh, production. So trying to see the impact that that shale gas extraction and production is having on the snake population, uh, which fortunately it didn't seem to bother them too much. Um, they were pretty adaptable to live in and amongst all of this heavy equipment. Uh, but yeah, that was, a, that was an unbelievable job of living in the forest, getting to interact with these absolutely beautiful rattlesnakes every single day. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know that you still hold timber rattlesnakes very close to your heart and I certainly do as well. Yeah. They're one of my favorites. That is, that's so cool. I didn't know that you did timber rattlesnakes too. They're surprisingly um, adaptable with new surroundings. It seems, you know, if the habitat's not fragmented too much, but that's really cool. Sounds like you had a very similar 
experience to me. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. No, I I loved that. Uh, I still attest that it's probably the best job I've ever had, and maybe ever will have. <laughs> truthfully, um, I mean, I love what I'm doing now, but it's hard to beat just like getting to know individual snakes and watching what they do, and and they're just amazing creatures. Yeah, yeah, and they each have their own personalities, but yeah, it's mm -hmm. thrilling being out there. Um, and there's such a large population of them in Pennsylvania, you know, especially compared to Ohio. Um, oh so I've been dying yeah. to go herping out there and looking for them. They were like, people are shocked when I tell them, but at least within the region we were, they were the most common snake on the landscape. Uh, I, I went back the following year, right around the time that they were giving birth, just to, you know, I hadn't seen any snake in, in about a year. And I think we found it was like 30 or 40 adults within a short, like one mile loop. And then we saw five or six fresh litters, you know, hadn't even had their first shed yet. And this was, you know, we took two hours out of our day to go just walk this loop where we knew there was a couple gestation sites. And you can't get better than that. That's so cool. Oh my God. We had like, I think the amount of snakes we had um tagged or tracked was like the high 20s and so like mm -hmm. we found a new one like every other month so because in ohio they're like critically endangered so that is like a dream for <laughs> very oh, few yeah. people's oh, dream yeah. is to walk around and see like dozens of rattlesnakes everywhere but that is so cool i'm so jealous i feel fortunate for sure um yeah so that was an incredible job you're already talking about when you're young, you think of, you know, the tropics and you romanticize that, but it seems like you kind of got to discover that there's this amazing, you know, wildlife that's not really associated very often with Pennsylvania right in your backyard. So you got to have that wild romantic experience right at home. Well, yeah. And so maybe that's, uh, you know, as a little tangent, like that's maybe what drew me to herps uh, because I didn't think about them much when I was young. I think it's, it's maybe a fair assessment to say that herpers and that whole community values those animals because they're like a little bit more on the fringe, a little bit more of an exotic animal um, in comparison to like deer or bears or whatever. And so maybe that's what an, or like drew it, you know, drew me to herps as a taxa is wanting something that was different and exciting and then realizing that like that different and exciting is right here like in my home yeah so after after that job uh like many people that are in the tech circuit i went home with my parents for a few months you know looking for the next thing and i think it was sometime in the end of the year december or something like that I heard from one of my professors that I had when I was a senior. So during my senior year, I spent a couple days volunteering on this uh, vernal pool breeding amphibian project that one of my professors was, uh, was organizing. And so it was, you know, super fun. It was just an experience to get out, get some volunteer experience, have a good time playing with herps, whatever. 
And I guess that made an impression because when I was sitting at home with my parents and looking for the next thing, uh, he emailed me out of the blue and said, Hey, you know, I, you seemed pretty interested in this sort of thing. I need some help running this project this upcoming year. Would you like to come back and just, you know, run the field season? It'll, it'll probably be like a month, something like that. Um, so obviously I had to take any opportunity I could get. Uh, so I went back up to Penn state, um, that following spring, you know, went through that project. Um, we were mostly doing capture mark recapture with spotted salamanders, but uh, we also had wood frogs and Jefferson's salamanders that uh, were pretty abundant in those pools. Um, so that was all ended up becoming the uh, a PhD student's research. It's like understanding how um, animals move in between a network of vernal pools that are all similar to one another, uh, which, you know, has implications for, you know, like, is it males or females that's like driving, you know, gene flow amongst all of these pools? Um, you know, are they really, do they really have site fidelity in the same way that we think they do? Um, yeah, a lot of really cool stuff ended up coming from that work. But I originally just came back to do that for a month. And in some interesting twist, that turned into a two-year position as a lab manager. Um, so I was super fortunate to not only work on that project, but to aid like all of the graduate students in our lab with all of their field work. I <laughs> entered all of their data. Um, I got to travel around and, and work on a bunch of different projects, which was really exciting. Um, yeah, that was that was incredible. Um, you know, it was I got the experience of being a graduate student without having the pressure of actually being a graduate student. So it was it was a really nice primer where all of my coworkers were grad students. I felt like I was in that community. I could see firsthand what that's like. Because you know, when you come out of or when you come out of undergrad you don't really understand what grad school is. And so I felt super fortunate that I got to see firsthand, like, okay, this is how research is done. This is how you pursue a graduate degree. Yeah. And so like quickly, I'll, I'll talk about some of the projects that I did with that. Uh, we, so our lab was a, it's the, well, Dr. Miller is the uh, PI for that lab, David Miller, um, super great guy. He is a quantitative ecologist. So meaning it doesn't really matter what type of animal it is. It's just using different quantitative methods to understand how, you know, populations interact with their landscape or with threats. It's maybe not the, and I, to me, it wasn't initially the super exciting side of wildlife research. You know, it, it's not about going out to the field and seeing these animals so much as it is you know, like understanding these species at a population level. Um, but the excitement in that is that you can actually answer very complex conservation questions using some of these quantitative tools. Yeah, so I, I kind of cut my teeth in quantitative ecology working in his lab, but I got to work on everything from uh, red-backed salamander mark recapture um, so we had a student who was studying their physiology and spatial ecology. Um, we had a number of bird students. 
Um, so, you know, people studying like interior forest bird communities, uh, I didn't actually get to go out and help them with any of their point counts or anything. But because of my vegetation plot experience, I helped them collect all of their data in like what's in the forest community when we're collecting these point counts to try to associate, you know, bird species presence with different environmental factors. I got to spend some time in Shenandoah National Park uh, doing some transect surveys for the endangered Shenandoah salamander, which is pretty incredible. Um, and that was actually part of a project with the USGS. Um, so it might not necessarily be intuitive to a lot of people, at least within the U.S., that the USGS or U.S. Geological Survey actually does a lot of wildlife research. Um, and in particular, I was working with the um, Northeast Army Group, which is Amphibian Research and Monitoring Initiative. Uh, and they were formed, I think, in the early 2000s, um, actually as a response to the Kittred pandemic. Um, so, you know, we need to start actually paying attention to amphibians now so that we can uh, make sure we don't lose them. And so they do a lot of work. Uh, well, there, there's different groups um, of this army organization throughout the U.S. Um, I was working with the Northeast group. So Virginia, all the way up to, um, I guess I spent some time in New Hampshire and Vermont. But yeah, I, I, I actually lived up there for a couple of months um, because we had a really great partnership between my lab at Penn State and this lab with the USGS. Uh, my my paycheck never changed, but I just like transitioned my life up to Massachusetts for a few months for two years in a row. Um, I did some uh, mostly redback salamander um, transects. I did vernal pool work. I got to spend some time on some wildlife refuges up there and actually got a little bit of volunteer experience with Blanding's turtles in some of uh, their refuges, which is really fun. And then my second year up there, I did all of those same things. But then also, that was the first year where our government started talking about the salamander chytrid, B-cell. And we weren't aware if it was in the United States or not. Um, as far as we're aware, it's still not, which is great. But so for that first year, me and two other technicians uh, basically just drove around New England with a big, like, physical atlas, looking at, you know, the landscape, finding a marked lake or wetland or whatever, and just driving to it to see if we could find newts. And then we'd catch newts and swab them um, and, you know, submit those samples. Yeah, so that, that, was, that was a really interesting time of, you know, unexpectedly living in New England, getting to work with a lot of different species. Um, yeah, that was, that was super fun. Um, yeah, so this, yeah, that experience at Penn State as that lab manager introduced me to so many different things. Um, oh, and I, I even got to spend two weeks in the High Sierra of California with some of our collaborators. Uh, our, our lab was collaborating with um, a group at Iowa State University and another college, which I'm struggling to remember, um, but this like big NSF project to assess uh, the, the populations of these two garter snakes in the High Sierra of California. 
one of them which predominantly lived in wet meadows and one of them which predominantly lived around the lake. And so is this like, you know, assessing the population as, uh, you know, that area has experienced a lot of drought. Um, so I spent two weeks camping up there, catching just handfuls of garter snakes every single day, taking blood samples, measurements, getting musked on a lot. <laughs> um, but that was that was amazing. Yeah. So like I got to do all of that within uh, within that one single you know job um, at Penn State, which I, I feel unbelievably fortunate for. Um, you know, getting to work with plants and herps of every kind of, you know, taxi you can imagine. Super fun. And I got to participate in some writing when I was there too. So I was, I was fortunate to get listed as co-author on two papers that came out of our vernal pool uh, research. Amazing way to see the country. Like, Oh yeah. I mean, I, I definitely didn't see the whole country. Like I don't yeah. want to give these delusions that I was like everywhere. But yeah, I mean, I, I got to go to some cool places and see some cool critters. I mean, like one of my favorite experiences uh, in in that time was doing the Shenandoah salamander work. And we're like right off the AT, you know, catching these endangered salamanders. And people are looking at us all funny, like people on the trail hiking, looking at us all funny, being like, what are you doing? We're like, oh, we're like out here studying the salamanders. And they're like, wait, so you're working? It's like, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're working. <laughs> oh man, so many people would kill for that. It's just so awesome. Like, and yeah. yeah, to to step back for a second, did you? So when you first went out with that professor to do the vernal pool stuff, was that just volunteering or? Yeah, just volunteering as an undergrad. Yeah, um, which I feel lucky. I mean, he had a handful of. Uh, a handful of undergrads that came out in that first year of the project. Um, I think it's, I mean, you, like, you know how it is. You end up becoming, you know, friends with some of your professors just because you care and they know you care and you just put forth that little bit of effort. Um, I don't know. You never know what comes of that. For me, it worked out pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. First of all, I just want to say all of this is so cool. <laughs> I wanted to ask a couple questions about uh, the findings from these projects really quick. That's okay. Did spotted salamanders show like slight fidelity to just one vernal pool year after year, or did they move around a little bit? They move around a little bit, which is super cool. Um, so there, there is a paper that you can look up, which, you know, I, I can send you guys a link to that. Uh, I, yeah. The PhD student on that project, um, Courtney Davis, she's incredible. She's now a, um, a researcher in the Cornell Lab of Ornithology as a quantitative scientist. So she's, she's top notch. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. So like within a breeding season, you know, like you'll have this heavy rain event, all the salamanders will come to the pool, they'll breed for like a week or so, and then they'll leave. And so within that like week or so that they're actually at the ponds, males will move between ponds even like day to day um so they're they're constantly moving around um you know there's some within the network that we are working there's some larger vernal pools and some smaller ones so definitely seem to be some you know sink source dynamics going on uh, but they're they're constantly moving around that 
females, we tended to not catch that often. And so it was a little bit harder to say, but it didn't seem like, at least within that week, they spent a lot of time moving around. Like they'd go to that pool, they'd breed, they'd lay their eggs there, and then they'd leave. What was interesting is there was a fair number of females that between years would move really far. So we had numerous documentations of a female moving like, you know, four or 500 meters from the pool that she was laying eggs in to go to a totally different pool in this network and then spend her year there, um, which was super interesting. Um, you know, I think there's the common conception that like males are usually the dispersers and the ones that, you know, uh, the ones that, you know, transfer genetics around like between meta populations and at the same region. And like, generally speaking, that is the case, but it was really neat to see that like females in this system played a pretty significant role in moving much further than we thought they would. That's so cool. Thank you for telling mm -hmm. me about that. And I'd love to read that paper. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we can link it on the uh, show notes. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's it's really cool. One, because it like, you know, it helps you understand gene flow and then mm -hmm. the natural history. But two, like, I don't know, amphibian home range size and movement patterns, I feel like are so understudied. Mm -hmm. So just to better conserve their habitat and understand what what you need you know, to maintain that population connectivity and gene flow. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I also have to ask about the, if we can keep this in or cut this out. I'm just so curious about um, the, uh, what the findings were with the garter snake um, study in the Sierras. I mean, the, the short of it is that this project started because particularly the species, it was one of the Western garter snake species. So the um, elegans, uh, the, that one uh, was the only one that was around the major lake that was out there. And as the lake had dried up, um, which it like significantly dried up, I, I think it went down like 20 or 30 vertical feet. Um, yeah, as the lake was drying, that population of garter snakes was like crashing, seemingly, um, like way, way fewer than there used to be, um, you know, because they lived on the shoreline, ate predominantly fish. Um, and as that shoreline keeps shrinking and, you know, yeah, they, they weren't doing well, unfortunately. Um, so, yeah, no, I'm, I'm a little bit curious about that as well. As you started to ask that question, I was like, oh, no, I don't remember the answer to all, all of that project. Uh, no, that's so cool. And Like, mm -hmm. yeah, I've seen a lot of garter snakes out here in Oregon. I think three different species. And just I, I have so many questions about I just need to go on Google Scholar and just read about them for a while because I have so many questions about their habitat selection and uh, oh their my diet gosh. and like thing, but they're so cool and the garter snakes out there are amazing you know from being someone in the east it's like okay we have a garter snake and well depending on where you are there's other ones uh, but generally we have one and then like maybe ribbon snakes you see sometimes and they're in the same genus 
but going out west and seeing the garter snake diversity was incredible like i still have this vivid memory of going to find i think their common name was um the sierra mountain garter snake <sighs> yeah that that might come to me regardless is this garter snake that is basically a water snake a nerodia i mean had eyes like slightly more situated on the top of its head it was brown they were hanging in bushes over top of flowing water like trying to catch fish it's just like dude you're a, a, like like this is convergent evolution right here like you are an animal filling that niche um because there's no water snakes there like that that blew my mind that was so cool that's so funny. I was actually going to bring that up is like, I've been pretending that the ones I see in the water and pretending they're the Nerodia, the West, because I miss water snakes so much, but really they, they do fill that niche. And yeah. it's, I think they like way back when they're actually grouped in the same genus. Um, Natrix, yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah with the so European cool. ones. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we should, keep talking about your journey these are just this is also cool to me <laughs> yeah no I, I i could try to run through the rest of my journey here uh, it's, it's pretty well yeah it took some time but it's pretty mm. simple so around the time i was finishing up as uh, in that lab manager position at penn state my um now wife uh moved to north carolina to start her phd in chemistry at unc chapel hill um, so we were doing long distance uh, for about two years, which was about long enough. And so I decided, well, I guess I'm moving to North Carolina. Uh, I would like to go to grad school. I guess we'll see if we can make this happen. So I, through trying to make connections, you know, one of the grad students that was a major mentor of mine, um, David Munoz, he originally grew up in North Carolina. So he was able to put me in touch with a couple of people. Um, and then the PI that I was working for uh, was colleagues and friends with uh, my current advisor here now. So he was able to put me in touch here. And through a long string of trying to pull together different connections, what basically happened is I got my current advisor, uh, his name's Krishna Pacifica. I got him on board with taking me on as a student but he didn't have any projects or at least none that I were interested in. And then I got in contact with um, one of the uh, state herpetologists in North Carolina. And he saw that I was super interested in working with salamanders. Um, I guess, you know, glazed over the fact that in working at Penn state, I became totally obsessed with salamanders. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that to happen, but I was like, yeah, amphibian conservation, this is what I want to study. And in having conversations with that state herpetologist, he told me like, hey, we have this big salamander down here that we know almost nothing about, but we're pretty sure it's declining. Someone needs to pay attention to this animal. It seemed like the right opportunity for me because it's local to central North Carolina right where uh, North Carolina State University is, right where my advisor that I wanted to work with was located. So the three of us wrote a grant together to um, fund this project. It took a little bit of time. Uh, well, actually from when we started talking about it to when it was funded was like two years. <laughs> so 
Um, there's a little bit of patience involved, you know, whenever you're working with, uh, in this case, it was state government that funded my, uh, my grant. Um, you know, there's always changing priorities and, you know, what they want to spend money on. And so it took a little bit of time to make it to the top of the list and, and actually get that funding. But I was pretty committed to this project. So at some point, I had to just commit and say, okay, I'm moving to North Carolina. I'm going to make this work. They've told me that this project is going to get funded. I moved here and then it didn't get funded. So I uh, spent a couple months floundering around feeling like a bum and found uh, a job in private consulting. So, which is sometimes can be like a taboo, you know, <laughs> field within wildlife science. Um, I guess this job wasn't particularly wildlife science. Uh, so I ended up getting a job in stream and wetland mitigation. Uh, now, so for like listeners that aren't familiar with this field, I was not in coming into this. Um, but because of Clean Water Act, which is the you know federal legislation, whenever uh, a waterway or a jurisdictional wetland is impacted by some sort of development, that developer has to offset that impact. And it's usually done through a credit system. So like, let's say they're, you know, even like Department of Transportation is repairing a bridge, they have some level of impact, they have to offset that with credit, those credits are generated by restoring streams or wetlands somewhere else. Now, the ecological implications of that system are tenuous, and I definitely have some feelings about that. But glazing over those, um, it was an amazing experience in, well, one, working in the private sector, because I hadn't done that before. So it was nice to at least understand what that was like. But then, because it was all Clean Water Act based, I got a lot of experience in understanding and thinking about watersheds and the land use within those that impact flow and hydrological you know, dynamics, which coming full circle is actually paying dividends for me studying a species that lives exclusively in flowing water. But yeah, so I, I did that. Um, I had that job for about 10 months until my grant got funded to come and start as a student at NC State. I think it's great that you brought up the consulting because I think a lot of people at the start don't realize that there's that potential. Uh, I definitely didn't, you know, realize it till I was maybe a junior in wildlife, you know, that it doesn't just have to be research or it doesn't just mm -hmm. have to be state agency or government agency that there is a private sector that you can work in. And even some States, like if you want to talk about how it is in PA a little, like mm -hmm. you may not necessarily have a, a state herpetologist. It may be a lot of, you know, consulting companies that are doing a lot of the conservation work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, there's a lot of really great consulting agencies, even that I work with right now in my research mm -hmm. um, that are really research and conservation minded while they're doing their work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also really nice to have that understanding from, from your side and from a management side, because, you know, even if you don't have necessarily the same goals, you still have to, to a degree, work together for the ultimate conservation of, 
you know, the species or the habitat or whatever it may be that you're, you're focusing on. So I think that's a great way to look at different perspectives, you know, having worked those different, different jobs and different. Yeah. Sectors. Yeah. 100%. I mean, when I'm thinking about, okay, I study this really cool salamander. How do I manage for this species? Like how do I restore waterways? Um, how do I, uh, you know, preserve extant habitat that is still good for these uh for this species like i actually have some background understanding of how that happens mm. um, which i you know i feel fortunate for it's one of those things where sometimes when you get sidetracked and you have to take a job that you weren't expecting it's easy to feel concerned like oh i'm not studying animals anymore like you know, I, I hope I'm, you know, not going to lose my passion. I hope I can still have the career that I want. Um, but like, there are benefits to just about any job that you can take. Um, they might not be expected. Like for my case, in that job, I wasn't playing with animals. I wasn't, you know, the, the nerd in me wasn't excited. But I got this awesome experience, you know, thinking about waterways. I got trained sort of, you know, basic training, but important training in GIS, which fast forward, I now have a certificate in GIS studies from our, our department. Um, so it's like, you, you don't know what you're going to, what sort of important experiences you're going to gain that will build you up to the position you want. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of just how it happens. You just stumble into one thing and then to the next. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And do you want to tell us about your work with the News River Water Dogs um, and your time at NC State? Yeah. So I started working with News River Water Dogs in 2018. Um, I originally started as a master's student and, you know, maybe cutting to the chase here, but around the time I should have been finishing up my master's uh, was in the middle of COVID. I wasn't super excited about the results of my research. And then the species was federally listed as threatened in 2021. And so, and, you know, of course, we were in conversations with the federal government during this time. So I knew that it was coming. And it was a perfect opportunity for me, who was in love with this animal, to expand my research into a PhD program. So we basically just shuffled around the paperwork and changed my title and, and made it so. Um. Yeah, so I've now had five seasons of working with this animal. So to start off, the New Server Water Dog is part of the Water Dog and Mud Puppy group. So Nectaris, uh, depending on who you ask, there's like six or seven species. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sure that that will change more. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll lose some and gain some and, and we'll see what happens. We can have the Dave majority Beamer of them to talk all about that. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, he actually has an, an interesting take on that. So you might, you might want to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now. So all of this group really is found in the Southeast United States with the exception of the common mud puppy, which inhabits the Mississippi drainage, which is like, you know, a third of the United States. So Louisiana, all the way up to the Great Lakes and into Canada. Um, the New River Water Dog within this group is only in two different river drainages that go to the Atlantic coast. 
Um, so two that are right next to each other, the Noose and Tar River Basins. Why they're in just those two, kind of hard to say. Uh, our best guess is that those two systems were probably connected when sea levels were lower. Um, and so they somehow found their way into that system. And then as sea levels rose, okay, now they're you know in these two adjacent basins. Um, it's a pretty large salamander, which is fully aquatic. So like pedomorphic, um, you know, if you can imagine like a tiny larval salamander, they look exactly like that, except really big. Actually, a lot of people draw the connection between them and axolotls, you know, you know common pet look very similar to that just with brown and black spots. They are only active during the winter. So that's when all of my sampling occurs. Um, it's maybe counterintuitive for people that like herps to think like, oh, these things are active during the coldest time of the year. But because they're aquatic, you know, and aquat and you know, freshwater systems are buffered a little bit to temperature change, um, that's actually like their prime operating zone. You know, when it's these low water temperatures, high dissolved oxygen content, um, that's when they're happiest. A lot of our streams in North Carolina actually can get pretty warm, at least in the eastern part of the state during the summer. And so that is probably the more stressful time of year for them. Um, and so during that winter, when they're more active, they're moving around, they're eating, they're breeding. Because of that activity, that's when we go looking for them. Um, so Dan was uh, <laughs> my first technician that I ever had for that project, which I could not be more thankful for because as I'm sure you're both aware, like the first year of a project can be kind of tumultuous. And so it was nice to have someone that was really adaptable and perpetually enthusiastic because otherwise it could have been really, really challenging. I mean, it still was challenging, but uh, Dan made it a lot easier. So thank you for that. But yeah, so I've, I mean, through the couple of years of studying that species, you know, we've been able to get down a routine where we sample predominantly with minnow traps. So if you imagine like this small metal cage that has a funnel on either end so that you know, the water dogs and fish or whatever can go in, but they have a hard time finding their way out. So you put those in the water throughout their distribution and, you know, check them daily to see if we can find any animals. And the majority of my research in like, so this, that's how the data is collected. But the majority of my research is using occupancy modeling techniques to understand what sorts of local environmental features, landscape features, different threats, um, all of these things that are impacting the quality of the habitat that they're living in like like how how can we start to determine okay like this is this is where water dogs are versus this where this, this is where they're not what's different about these two places it, it gives us some insight into what are the predominant threats and how much do those threats like quantifiably impact the population we can even tease that apart into adults versus juveniles that we can begin to say something about what impacts recruitment of the species. Um, and this is all in hopes of understanding what the heck is going on, why are they declining, so that now that they're federally listed, we can actually come to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, who is now funding <laughs> this part of my research, and say, okay, 
this is the problem. Like when you want to recover the species, this is what you have to address. And so you'll, there's probably a lot of questions to be had in there. <laughs> and I ran through it very quickly. But that's the 10,000 foot overview of what I'm doing. Um, and I, I guess as an aside, I feel so lucky to be studying a species right at the time where people and the government care about its conservation and I'm able to, like, in real time, help people make decisions about its management. I feel super, super fortunate for that. It's like the perfect world for you where you get to see kind of all sides of the conservation. You get to see how your research influences these decisions, but also you get to kind of see the policy side of it, too, which I think is also another another thing that... I feel like I don't understand enough. And I think a lot of wildlife people don't realize how, how confusing it can get, but yeah, I think that's, that's really cool. And to be, you know, in that position, you know, 20 years down the line, people will be able to look back and say like, this is this, your research informed, you know, these decisions that maintained this species on the landscape, at least in a, in a way. So I hope. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, that's really challenging. Like I didn't, I didn't explicitly say it yet, but so part of the reason they're declining is that the headwaters of the Noose River Basin. So again, like half of its range essentially mm -hmm. is the city of Raleigh and Durham. So you have like one of the fastest growing parts of our state is like at the source of the waterways where this animal lives. And so, you know, it's like an easy story to sell in terms of like, okay, well, regardless of what the exact problem is, like, it's pretty clear why this species is declining and maybe like a, a good way to illustrate that. So if you're familiar with the idea of a holotype, like you have some animal collected in a museum somewhere, and that is the representative specimen of this is what this species is. And so for the new server water dog, it's hollow type, like this is what a water dog is, was collected in the main stem of the Noose River in present day Raleigh. And they're just not there anymore. And they haven't been there for like a couple decades. So it's it's this very real story of like, you know, we're not we're not about to lose the species, thankfully. Like we've, you know, this is this is how conservation should work. We've caught it while there's a problem happening, not while it's already gone. But it's very clear that like there's there's something wrong um, and we've lost the animal from a big part of its range. Yeah. And even just from the time that I moved out of Raleigh coming back, I think it was last year. It is almost unrecognizable, the area around campus, like there's so much construction that's been done and new roads coming in that. Yeah, it's it's crazy to see how fast that area is changing. Yeah. Yeah, very quickly. I mean, even so prior to me, there was one study with this species, uh, which was done by the Museum of Natural Science in Raleigh. Uh, and that was conducted the late 70s, early 80s. And that was basically like everything that we know about the species, its ecology, where it lives, what it eats, when it breeds, everything. And yeah, I mean, like since then, the whole area has changed. I mean, that was 1980, roughly, when they finished. 
And I think I looked up once that the population of Raleigh has grown like 400% in that time period. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a rapidly changing landscape for sure. Yeah. I, I think it's cool too. When, when I was working with you, I think it shows one, how small our field is and how connected everybody is. Um, Jeff Humphreys, who you're working with, was from Ohio and actually like grew up with my later mentor, Greg. So it was like, yeah, it, it was just like crazy to think about that. And then mm-hmm. like to see where they've both gone in this small field. It, the network that we have here, I mean, within just wildlife science in general, but especially within herpetology, the network in the Southeast is unbelievable. There's so many dedicated and passionate and super friendly people. Mm. Um, and so getting to work with all of them, like, obviously, I love my research. It is so much fun to be doing that alongside of so many partners, you know, state, federal, state parks, county parks. Um yeah, the list goes on. And it it's, again, like this, seeing this whole other side and important side of conservation of like, this is how it actually happens about, you know, with creating these large networks of people that care and can leverage resources from different places. Yeah, I, I was going to say too, with David Munoz, mm-hmm. I saw him, I think, present in New Mexico before I met you. And then I forget, but somehow we realized, like, I realized that you also knew him. Mm-hmm. And then when I was in grad school, he was running the um, the park partners, amphibian reptile conservation, the uh, diversity, inclusion and equity board. So then like mm-hmm. later being in meetings with him, it was just like, yeah, it's weird. You you just run into people yeah. at a conference and you don't think anything about it. And then, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no dave dave was um there there's multiple people that mentored me very heavily um he was probably the most influential one just because i worked with him so closely um he ended up being one of the groomsmen at my wedding <laughs> that's amazing it's a yeah yeah such a small world and you just it shows we've talked a little about how close you get with the people you work in the field with mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah and side note and again we don't have to keep this in but um speaking of like weddings and hurt people my uh my friends married her husband as a bridesmaid in her wedding i think it was 2019 yeah it was a year before the pandemic so 2019 and the officiant um was priya dan you know Mm, yeah uh, priya is that's amazing priya ninjapa (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and I didn't know her, um, but I, like they told me about, you know, I I got to know her at the wedding, and she was so cool. And then like, uh, yeah, I was listening to Ologies, like the mm-hmm. podcast, and realized that she had been a guest on Ologies, and I was like, oh my god, this person's so cool. And then the PhD student I worked on the timber rattlesnake project with, it turns out he was, uh, originally in her like worked with her in a lab in indiana and then Mm -hmm. another one of her lab mates i ended up meeting here in portland and she's in the same lab as me and yeah and now we're friends and it's just so bizarre 
how that works. Like I met her at a wedding and didn't know who she was. And it turns out like she's worked with people I know. And like, I don't know. It's just crazy the way. And like half the people at that wedding hurt people too, which is so cool. But and anyway. Andrew, Andrew worked on Indiana Herp Atlas with yeah. um, Dr. Kingsbury. So like, yeah, well, everybody's connected. It's just crazy. Yeah, it's so In some bizarre. way. Yeah. In some yeah. way, everyone's yeah. connected. There was, uh, there was one time my second year when one of the grad students in my lab was like, hey, my former technician uh, who, I mean, this guy did Bob White quail work. He was like, my former technician is really interested in coming out to the field with you. Like, can she come volunteer? It's like, yeah, sure. Like, I'd be happy to have her out. And she comes out and I was like, oh, I know you. Like, you were part of that other crew when I was doing Shenandoah salamander research. Like, I haven't seen you in like four years, but I know you. <laughs> like, yeah. Now that we're we're talking about people, it seems like a yeah. segue. If you want to yeah, zoom out and talk about, you know, the different influential people or mm. you know, mentors you've had over the years. So I think like influential people, like why am I doing what I'm doing now? Um, like I know everyone always gives the answer of like, oh, I watched Steve Irwin on TV and like, that's why I want to be, you know, a wildlife researcher. And like, I definitely have some of that. Although I'll also throw in um, Jack Hanna, who I know, Dan, you you can uh, attest to that as, as an Ohio guy, as well as um, the Krat Brothers from Zabumafu, like super impactful on my development and uh, interest in studying wildlife and, you know, working with animals. As far as mentors, I've had so many incredible mentors at different stages of my life you know the first one actually the first job I ever had which I didn't mention it because it's not exactly a professional job but I worked at like a local mom and pop style uh, pet store near where I grew up um, which was actually kind of what converted me into really being interested in herps Um, you know I think there's good and bad about getting interested in herps from the pet and keeping side of the realm. And, you know, that's, we don't maybe necessarily need to get into that, but for me, it was very positive. And the supervisor that I had there was interested in a lot of things. He he worked mainly in um, like saltwater tanks and reefs and things, but he, he also loved herps and was super into dart frogs and the, he was the type of guy where even as like a hobby, like pet enthusiast, he didn't know the common names of dart frogs. He referred to them only by their scientific names. Um, and so like that was my first taste of seeing someone that was like truly passionate about the animals and their ecology. And he was just so, so kind to me. Um, so like he was he was very influential. Uh, I think the first um, PI that I you know worked for uh, as that lab manager, Dave Miller, um, you know, being this quantitative ecologist, this guy who is very knowledgeable about animals, but then also basically a statistician. Uh, that was my first taste of seeing how rigorous science can like really inform these like conservation and management questions that you care about. Like he totally converted me into like, yeah, you can be an expert and know a lot about the species. And hopefully that enables you to make good decisions, but you really make good decisions by collecting good data and analyzing it in robust ways. Um, So he 
yeah, him giving me the opportunity to work in that lab. Um, unbelievable. Can't say enough about that. And then the crew of grad students that were in that lab that like took me under their wing, treated me as one of their own. Um, they, you know, they were the ones that really propelled me to where I am now. Um, so Dave Munoz, as I mentioned before, and Courtney Davis at um, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and um, Stacy Ambergie, who's now actually the quantitative ecologist for um, the Washington um, Wildlife uh, Commission. I, I don't know exactly what their <laughs> what their official title is. Um, so yeah, it's there, there's been I've, I've felt very fortunate that there's been a number of incredible people that have uh, been around me and supported me in you know bringing me to where I am now. And of course now I have my advisor. I have a number of state and federal employees that are looking out for me, um, you know, people on my committee. Uh, it's, you know, there, there's a lot of really excellent people in this field. And I don't know. Yeah, I, the list could go on. Yeah. Thank you for telling us about those. That's like, again, we've talked about this on this podcast, but those people are the, yeah, what we owe a lot to. I would not be where I was today if people didn't take the chance on me. And Mentorship is so important, and I guess I'll like segue into a next a next question. With that, is do you have advice for the next generation or people that want to do what mm-hmm. you do? Any any advice about your journey um, that you would like to share? Yeah, perfect. Thank you, and that also gives me a chance to like bring in another little topic that I wanted to bring in that I think Dan alluded to is, well, first of all, like, obviously, it's very, it can be difficult to volunteer. I mean, particularly in today's economy, it's like, it can be difficult to volunteer. But you never know what sort of experiences and um, connections can be made through that, even if you take like a day or two days. I mean, for me, taking two days turned into a two-year position where I got to work with all sorts of different species and move around and work with a, you know, a ton of different people. So I recognize that that will not be the experience of most people of having a volunteer you know, ship turn into something like that. But you never know what volunteering will bring. And I've, because of my experience in getting lucky like that i've been very intentional about bringing as many volunteers into the field as i can with my research so i'm lucky that all of my field work is within driving distance of our campus and we're able to do it in day trips now sometimes that means driving an hour and a half each way but still you can do it all in a day uh in in the well i know that well I think both. Yeah, because Emma, you came down and you were in the field at one point, not with me, but with Dan. Um, Edward, you're, you know, one of your other guests was in the field with me, a, a bunch of people. And I've had now, I counted, it's something like 77 undergrads from either our program at NC State or UNC that have come into the field to get firsthand experience of this is what research looks like. This is how conservation happens. You know, they're able to physically handle and measure a federally protected species. And like those sorts of experiences are, you know, like that's how that's how you find your passion. And that's something that you can bring to the table 
when you're talking to a future employer and say like, oh yeah, I was able to do this and it was really interesting to me and here's why. Yeah. So that like, I, I absolutely love that side of it, of, of trying to get people more experience. Now, if I was to give a second piece of advice, it would be to diversify. Um, so like, obviously I'm very committed to herpetology now and well, that's my passion. We'll say my first job was doing plant work and I was able to get paid for some of my time as a lab manager because I went out with the students doing ornithology research and helped them identify their plants. And then I was able to get a job working for this stream and wetland restoration company because I was good at identifying plants and I was good in the field. And, you know, now I've gained like GIS as another experience of like, you know, there, there's all these things that are maybe tangential to your actual passion that are could could give you that leg up or like oh well you know you're not the ideal candidate but you do know how to do this other thing that we we would really like so like yeah perfect we'll we'll take that risk on you like for me it, it was mostly plants it was like okay well there's all these experiences that i don't have but you are good at plant id so yeah that would be convenient we might as well pick you up so yeah having having some other like having additional skills from your passion is is super beneficial i mean and now for me even though i consider myself a herper or herpetologist like more than likely my career is going to be in aquatic ecology and so who knows, maybe that's working with mussels or, you know, what that's where a lot of the funding is these days. Anyway, in the U.S., it's in muscle research. And I think I'm fine with that. But it's yeah, it's like you, you're always gaining these skills. Like, what else can you apply them to? I think of all the people I've worked with, I think you're one of the best at engaging volunteers and getting people interested. And I think a lot of ways that's one of the most important sides of conservation, because if people don't care, they're not going to want to get involved and they're not going to do anything, you know, to make sure that this habitat and these species are conserved. And another thing I was to say is when, when I was working for you, I, I remember, you know, you would quiz me on birds and plants and stuff, which, you know, at the time I wasn't as into, but through you and Edward, you know, you mm -hmm. got me and, I think it does one, it diversifies your skills. And two, I think it, it helps you to appreciate what's around you more just as someone who, who likes wildlife. And I think we definitely, you know, as a geneticist and you doing a lot of quantitative stuff. Now you get very caught up in the data and the sample collection and, you know, you need this, you need this, but it's always good to step back and, you know, remember why, you're out there in the first place mm -hmm. and it's those experiences that make it from like, Oh, that's just a bird to, Oh, that's a black and white warbler. Or, oh, that's a nuthatch or, you know, it gets you excited and um, it does also make you more marketable. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think it's, it's a really awesome thing. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, the number of volunteers you had and you know, that go on to do other stuff is just amazing. So yeah, that is one of the most rewarding parts is establishing connections with these students and then going on to see what they do. And like, I've been able to serve as a reference for a number of them. And um, yeah, that's been, that's been really rewarding. I love that part. Yeah. And not, not everyone is that kind with their, their time or their knowledge. So 
it's yeah, it's huge. And I think a lot of people don't realize how big that can be to just share, you know, one, one day with someone. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so, and you, you touched on this now a little bit. So in, in your research, you know, where do you find the most, I guess, fulfillment other than, you know, engaging the volunteers which you kind of already talked about? Is it, mm-hmm. you know, actually getting to interact with the animals or like you said, make, inform inform these conservation decisions or build your network there's there's so many things you've touched on what's yeah i would i'll split it between two things getting to interact with your study species is always a magical experience and at this point i've physically handled and processed like 500 water dogs and i still never get bored of it like it's still that first one of the season, you, you pull it out and you put it in a little bin of water and watch it walk around. And it, I, I will never get tired of that. It's amazing. Um, and the field work is where I shine. I, I have a lot of years of experience in the field now. I love it. That, that's my favorite part. Um, it's also, yeah, incredibly fulfilling to work on the conservation side of it. Uh, like there are portions of critical habitat that are designated for this species in their recovery plan that are places that we wouldn't have known about if I didn't go and survey them. Um, so like this is, I mean, that's, you know, like the, that's, that's incredible. There's, um, you know, as we are developing this recovery plan, which actually the draft version was just released for public comment like this past week. But as we're writing those documents or as the the recovery lead is writing those documents like i i get to participate as one of the people sitting at the literal table to discuss what the problems are and how we're going to handle them which for someone that grew up wanting to work with animals and make a difference in conservation like it's it, it's hard for me to <laughs> articulate like how lucky i feel to be able to participate in that and and yeah it's it's just super enjoyable to be among the experts in the room and um you know have an opinion that matters and like try be in a position to actually try to to help this animal um that's you know i i I spend a lot of time sharing that message or at least i try to but i i love that love that part of it yeah yeah, being part of something in the conserv- conservation field in general and then being part of something with a federally threatened species. And, you know, it sounds like you're really kind of like the lead on this species. Like you're an expert on the species now. It just sounds like your entire career with this species is so fulfilling and so cool and inspiring. Oh, thank and then, you. I mean, I really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. And so what's next for you? I mean, that's a hard question. And I know you said, you know, aquatic ecology, maybe mussels. There is so much, you've been out here in Oregon, there's so much muscle work going on. It's really fascinating. But where are you in your, your PhD? I mean, you're a candidate, which is great. It means you got past your um, qualitative exams and you're, yep. you know, yep. over that hump. So yeah, what's, what are the next steps for you? 
So the first step is plugging on away until um, until graduation. So this is now beginning my sixth year, which is, it, you know, it's it, it's been time. <laughs> you know, it's been time to finish. I, of course, love working with my species, but I need to not be a student. Um, so I am, yeah, I'm going to, my intent is to graduate in the spring. So, um, you know, like May graduation. Beyond that, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what ends up happening. So, you know, maybe a, a common plight of, I think, a lot of people in the sciences is what's referred to as the two-body problem. So, you know, when you have a significant other that is also an expert in something and passionate about something, and it's often really challenging to find those two things in one place. Um, so, yeah, um, Taylor is interested in sort of applying all of those mentorship opportunities that I was saying as a faculty member um, at a like liberal arts or primarily undergraduate college somewhere. Um, so she right now is in the thick of looking for uh, places to apply to. Um, we're, we're looking predominantly on the East Coast because this is where our family is, but we'll see what happens. So I think a lot of what I end up doing is going to be dictated by, okay, well, are we going to stay in North Carolina? Are we going up to New England somewhere? Or, you know, where are we going? Within those parameters, I have loved my opportunity in partnering with state and federal agencies. In particular, you know, like, yeah, getting getting to work with both the state herpetologists and collecting on the ground research you know, getting this data, um, like that's, they, they provide such critical, critical roles. And so having a position like that, I think would be amazing. It would fulfill the side of me that loves being in the field and interacting with the species. I would also really like to be on the federal side of it, which is not as much field work oriented, which is a little bit disappointing, but they are the ones who like, so for instance, the person that I work with heavily, um, she's the recovery lead for I think nine aquatic species in the Southeast. And so, I mean, she's not out interacting with all of those species all the time in the same way that I am with the water dog now, but she's able to say like, these are my animals. Like I'm writing the reports. I'm, um, you know, working with collaborators to try, to try to understand what research is being done and what we need to achieve. Um, and I think like that is, I mean, she is at the, at the, ground zero of making conservation decisions and like I think that would be super rewarding so yeah I don't know I've spent a lot of time in academia I'm not sold that I want to be an academic mostly because there are parts of it that are challenging that would detract from the parts of it that I love like I, I love mentorship I love research I've written two grants now to fund my own research I do not want to do that and have grad students' livelihoods riding on it. <laughs> um, I don't particularly want to teach classes either. So um, yeah, so I, I think I think some sort of governmental biologist position would be really great. Maybe that's a, a really really long and circuitous way of saying that. <laughs> no, I get it. That's why I'm gonna start working for NRCS. Being on the mm -hmm. federal level is really cool, and I've caught. I, I couldn't stay in academia either. It's part of the reason why I didn't go for my PhD. It's like, yeah, I don't think I could 
I could stay in that forever, but, but yeah. So to uh, kind of bring us home, do you want to tell us about a standout or favorite field memory or research memory or, or a few, maybe the greatest hits? Uh, yeah, we might have to do a greatest hits. Uh, so I think one theme that I've heard from some of your other guests is that sometimes doing stuff that really sucks in really challenging environments can still be fun in retrospect. But I've heard that referred to as like type two fun. Like it's not fun in the moment, but it's fun when you think about it later. And I've had a lot of moments like that. Um, so, I mean, it's like, marking 500 spotted salamanders with only David while it's wet snowing on us for 10 hours, taking like basal area measurements of hemlock trees when it's, you know, 12 degrees Fahrenheit outside uh, and the water, the water's freezing in my bottle, waking up in that garter snake project and like waking up in my tent and putting them on my pants for the day and like instantly smelling myself and gagging because I've been mucked on so much, but also realizing, but I like I'm camping in the Sierras and I'm catching snakes all day. Like, this is incredible. I, I mean, or like our the first day of our field research when we got poured on while setting traps all day and it was miserable. That was the that was the heaviest rain that we've gotten since I've lived in North Carolina. I think we had like five or six inches of rain that day. And that was <laughs> that was something um, I've had so many opportunities of, you know, not expecting to catch water dogs that day and I'll pull up a trap and there'll be six in there and it's just incredible. And then the next trap has another six in it and everyone's freaking out and we're all excited. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, getting to bring out so many cool and interesting people into the field has been a lot of fun, you know, at a, at a risk of like plugging myself, but like, I mean, it was a cool opportunity, so I got to talk about it. Last year, or two years ago, we had a film crew from North Carolina PBS come out and like film us for a day. And we did this little special that was like a five minute segment on, you know, on public TV here. And like, that was so cool to be able to like, talk about our research, do it in the field, you know, bring it to people all over North Carolina. Yeah, those are those are just a handful. Um, But for me, I've even had the experience of when I've been down in the dumps, just writing at my desk all day, every day. And then I'll take a day to go out with my techs to go collect some field work because, you know, we have some project partner comes out and I want to, you know, save face and go meet them or whatever. And we're not even doing anything particularly interesting or maybe seeing that many animals, but I'm like, you know what? I love being out in the field. Like this is so much better than being behind the desk today. Yeah. There's, there's a million stories, but those are at least a handful of them. I'll, I'll hit a little on that that first year too. I remember that that first day, uh, I flooded my waders and almost got <laughs> washed away because the bank that we were walking on to get to the traps was just gone. Uh, and I remember you literally physically pulling me out of the water. I was like, I I might drown. Uh, so that was wild. <laughs> I remember the time we thought we were getting shot at. Dude, that same spot, someone was doing the exact same thing two years later. So, like, for for context, this is just in the middle of the woods, rural North Carolina. 
on the other side of the bridge from where we were working, there's just a dude sighting in his gun. He's like, yeah, it's a little off. So I need to like shoot this target. They're like middle of the woods. And this person is like right where we are just shooting. Yeah. We thought we were being shot at. And that's happened multiple times at that spot. It's crazy. Oh, that, was, that was terrifying. <laughs> but like it still stands out. And I think about it quite often when I'm doing field work. Bruising my ribs. That was falling on the 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 flow meter and bruising my ribs. That was. Um... I feel so bad about that to this day, and I'm not even using that data. That's the worst part. That uh... flow meter was such a waste of time. <laughs> but I'll I'll say all in all through all of it, that was that was my first like real field tech position, and that was to this day one of my favorite mm-hmm. jobs I've ever gotten to work. I learned so much from you just about, you know, doing research and seeing how you would mentor, you know, the the volunteers we would bring out. And uh, I think that's really inspired me, you know, when I was doing my own work to try to get volunteers out and get them as engaged as possible. But, and then you were also just so generous with, you know, sharing your experiences and, telling me about grad school because I had no idea what I was getting into. And um, luckily after talking with you, I I had some idea of what to expect (laughs) because that was also a very nerve wracking process. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for, for all that. Uh, It was, it was a fantastic Mm. experience and um, yeah, just so much fun. I appreciate that. It was, it was of course, excellent having you out there. I mean, I've, I've had so many great techs. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I feel like I barely had to help you. You, you were, uh, you know, ready to go from the gate. Um, <laughs> you know, when I heard you got that master's position and I was like, Oh, so, okay. Well, like, yeah, he's, he's already going on to do bigger and better things. <laughs> he, he doesn't need me, <laughs> but, um, no. So I, I appreciate that though. It's, uh, you know, I've, because of the mentorship experience experience that I had in coming up, I've been very intentional about paying that forward. And so I'm, I'm glad that it made an impact. Yeah, you definitely do a fantastic job at it. Uh, and we'll we'll have to link that PBS documentary too, which was also, oh, it was so exciting to see that. It was so cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was, I was super giddy about it. It, it, the worst part was is that they aired it during my qua- my qualifying exams. Uh, so it was like it was like after my fourth day of just writing nonstop, I had to stay up till like nine thirty at night to watch this. <laughs> do you have uh do you have any social media you want to plug for the water dog? Sure. Any, uh, yeah, stuff. Like yeah, that. yeah. So I have well. well as a disclaimer, I am not good at social media, but I recognize its importance. So we have both an Instagram and a TikTok, which is at NCSU Water Dogs, all one word. Um, the Instagram, I keep up a little bit. The TikTok, I haven't. I had an intern last year that was excellent at it, and I'm looking to get another intern for this uh, this upcoming year specifically because uh, it's it's too much for me i don't know i like i just turned like i just turned 32 and for me like the idea of being a tiktoker is like not something that seems feasible 
But if I could get an undergrad that's like really excited that I can get really excited about water dogs like that, that would be ideal. Um, but yeah, th those are the two things that we have going on. And then if people are like, you know, trying to learn more about just water dogs in general, um, I'm currently working with the Fish and Wildlife Service on updating their um, species profile for the animal. And in that we have linked like a little informational pamphlet that that same intern and I helped uh, write, which is, you know, everything that you need to know about the species, what its conservation needs are, what you can do, that sort of thing. Awesome. Well, we'll link all those and uh, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences. Uh, this was the a awesome episode. So much fun to hear about. Yes, thank you, Eric. I'm so excited about everything you just shared with us, and I'm really excited to look at these papers. And I just followed your Instagram <laughs> to <you>. learn more <laughs> about the work you do. But yeah, thank you for taking some time to talk to us. The water dogs are very lucky, cool. and they're they're in good hands. So. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'm trying my best. I'm trying my best. 